HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way. And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres. Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. Tune in to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so pleased to be speaking with Betty Wiggins, a veteran nutrition director and woman who has been working to feed urban children for 30 years. She's been credited with making enormous improvements to the quality of school meals served at Detroit Public Schools and is now leading the Houston Independent School District's Nutrition Services Department, responsible for feeding well over 200,000 students per day. In our conversation, we're going to be talking more about her work, discussing the challenges and successes she's had over her impressive career and how she's leading by example. Betty, welcome to the show. Thank you, ma'am. So let's start just right at the beginning. How did you get your start in school food and how long have you been doing this work for? Well, prior to school food, I was in healthcare, And then in 1989, I went to Africa for six months, almost a year, uh, to work with a friend who had a hospital. I had known him in college. And so my kid was in in college, and so I just shut down my house, and I went to Africa. And so when I came back, I had, contract, uh, had um, contacted uh, malaria. Oh. So 
I uh, was off for about uh, three months, six months. So when I, I said, I don't want to go back to health care. Besides that, DRGs, diagnosed related groups, had started messing around in health care, and I said, well, I didn't sign up for that. So <laughs> one day I was just reading an article about school, school food service. And so what I did was I went and signed up with the Detroit Public Schools as a substitute uh, cafeteria worker. So I could find out exactly what is this school food all about. I had taken a couple courses in college, but nothing. And so let me actually get in the kitchen and see what goes on. And I really like it. And I liked it very much. And so after that, the Marriott Corporation started advertising for school food uh, directors. And and luckily, being from out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, they were looking for a food service director for Ann Arbor, Michigan. While, you know, I was, I, my formative years was spent in Washington County on a farm, and Ann Arbor would have been my big city. So mm-hmm. I just sent in my resume, and they said, wow, you, you're from the area. Mm-hmm. Very often get somebody said, yeah, my nieces and nephews, my brother, they lived in the area. So I was hired as a contractor food service director with the Marriott uh, Corporation. Um, okay, so that was in Detroit, but now you're in Houston. Um, that was in, no, no, I started my career in 1989 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, in Ann Arbor, okay. And you know what, I should yeah. sorry, I should know that because I am from the Detroit area, actually, so <laughs> shame oh, on really? me. Yes, yeah. yes, which is why so, I had followed your work even, even closely with um, when you were at the Detroit uh, school system. Well, Detroit, Detroit happened almost. So 1989, I started in Ann Arbor, and from there I went to Patterson, New Jersey, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. I got back to Detroit in 1998. Okay. 1999. Wow. And I was only there for a couple years, and district policy, the policymakers decided they wanted to outsource. So they outsourced to Detroit Public Schools. I went away for eight years and did a consulting and stayed really engaged in schools because I, I, I think it's just the best work you possibly could do. And then in 19, um, 2005, I returned to Detroit. Okay. So I was in Detroit from 2008 to 2017, yeah. So what are the... And that was after the management company. The district had decided that they had had enough of outsourcing and so I work with the union in uh-huh. terms of writing a counterproposal, and the, the board accepted our counterproposal, and I came on as a director in, in 2010, and I was there until 2017 when Houston recruited me to come and run their service because they were uh, turning, they had canceled the contract. They have been outsourced for 21 years almost. Okay, and, and I want to director, and I want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about kind of what what that means when you talk about outsourcing. But first, so you're in Houston now. Can you just um, give a like paint a picture of what the school district looks like? So, how many kids do you serve each day? What is the free reduced rate and participation rate in the program? Other programs you serve? Oh God, Houston's a huge district. It's it's the seventh largest in the United States. Uh, we have 206,000 kids. Uh, we have an ADP of about 269,000 meals. That's with breakfast and lunch. Uh, we are not. We we are. There's poverty here in Houston, and because of that poverty, poverty and direct certification, 
we are CET, 100%. Which is the community eligibility provision, so you have universal free meals. Universal free meals. When I came, uh, when I arrived in Houston, they were already doing universal breakfast. Okay. So... Harvey came along. I, I, I arrived in Houston same time Harvey. <laughs> and and you, did that, you bring the hurricane and, with you? <laughs> I know. I thought, you know, I thought I was gonna bring a snowstorm. I haven't seen that much water in all my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. coming from the Great Lakes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I had not seen that much. But what we were able to do through this disaster snap and uh, and some already existing um we had 198 schools already on CEP, but because the hurricane was so devastating this community, our, dis- our, our disaster snap brought us up to a level where every school in the district was eligible. So right now we're on a four-year, um, we're on four years, and we're going into our third year right now. So we're looking at probably in 22, school year 21-22, we're going to have, have to probably react the district if they don't extend um, CEP. Wow. So um, I hope they do. Okay, so that, that comes up for renewal. Was that, that was just temporary? Yes. Was that like a special kind well, of grant because of this the, the hurricane? Or no, is no, that... no, 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 no. CEP, uh, Debbie, Debbie Stavenon, when she was uh, uh, chair of the Ag Committee, mm-hmm. that was one of the things that came out of the Healthy and Hunger Free Act was this community eligibility. First, it was a pilot of only five states. And because I'm in Michigan, because she's a great senator, mm-hmm. Michigan was one of them. And so Detroit had been CEP. And then I think in a couple of years, they started extending it to everybody. Okay. And so um, I can't remember for five states, but I know Michigan was one of them. And so when I arrived here in Texas, they had CEP in 198 of the 284 schools that we had. Well, Harvey came along and people just couldn't get food. People couldn't get, it was just, I've never seen anything like that. Right. It was so bad. So we were able to extend it to all 284 schools. Okay. Okay. But then that might, but then the other schools might not, uh, continue to qualify after the four-year period. Right, right. Okay. At, yeah, after four-year period. Every year we have to, you know, we have to, to determine if we're still eligible. Mm-hmm. And we have been for the last uh, two years. We're going to our third year now, and like our fourth year, you know, we'll have to um, either, if they say they're going to extend it, which they may do, or we'll have to reapplication the district, but we'll still have about 198, 200, because this is a high poverty district right. in some areas. So don't, you know, don't let it fool you. We do have some very, you know, wealthy areas, but also because of the economic diversity in this city, we have some high poverty schools as well. What, um, how do you qualify? Can you just explain to us what um, qualification looks like for a school for, set, for the well, CEP program? 62.5% of our children are directly certified. And because of that, we use the factor 1.6, so that gets us over 100%. Okay. And so when you, when you get over 100%, when you multiply by that 62.5, you multiply by the factor, mm-hmm. you get, so the whole district can eat. Uh, and there's no categorical eligibility. Everyone is free. Okay. All right. So, so- yeah. So what does, um, it's ever complicated with 
<laughs> school food. Um, what does the daily responsibilities of your role look like, broadly speaking? Oh, broadly speaking, I got the best job as a food service director. First off, I have some very qualified staff. I have I have uh, seven RDs, registered dietitians. I have about six six chefs. I have one executive chef, and then I have a senior manager who a general manager who is a dietitian as well, who is responsible for the school sites. And from that, we have like eighteen. Um, what we call area managers. It's a very complicated, um, you know, we stratify, we have to stratify in order, stratify responsibilities and services to these kids. Mm-hmm. So the best thing that I get to do is I have, you know, I have a, the leadership team, and that's made up of, of uh, my uh, dietitian, who's a, who's a general manager of nutrition services and operations, and then I have another person who's in charge of the finance. Because one of the things that we have to do in this district, we, we generate about $140 million a year. Really? The reimbursement. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. It is big business. Yeah. And, it's, and you know, I, I tell people all the time, if we don't generate that money, we, we can't buy good nutrition. We yeah. can't buy nutrition. And that's what people keep forgetting, that child nutrition programs are not-for-profit businesses. Our whole objective is to feed every kid, feed every kid good food, but not to infringe upon the education budget at all. Because when you do that, if you come up at the end of the year and, you know, use the, short, use the term short, well, the district has to pay all your bills. Mm-hmm. And that money comes out the classroom. So, again, you know, our whole effort is to make sure that we, we feed the kids good food, we pay our staff, we do all our supplies. And hopefully have a little bit left at the end of the year right. so that we can do some more interesting things. So we're a not-for-profit business. So right. all my schools are on P&L, so we run it with a business perspective in mind. I mean, and it is, we, um, in a previous interview, I spoke with Jennifer Gaddis, whose recent book, The Labor of Lunch, um, is coming out soon. But she had said that the school... That yeah, yes. She had said the school food service kind of the programs are, you know, they're really expected to be self-sustaining, which is very unique, I think, um, for like a, a public program and also in, you know, in the school environment, which adds a layer of complexity and difficulty, I imagine. Um, so the procurement process. I, I agree with her because they said they give kids free rides to school, they give them free uniforms, they give them free tutorial, yeah. but then when it comes to feeding them, which is so essential to academic success, a hungry, you know, we heard it, almost I'm tired of hearing it, a hungry child cannot learn, you know, uh, educate, uh, we feed the, uh, the future, you know, but yet still, when you sit down at the end of the day, I have to run a break-even program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a, and you know, like I told you, if I don't break, if I don't break even or make money, I can't buy nutrition. Right, right. And that's the reason a lot of my colleagues' programs are, you know, I've been very fortunate, and I was fortunate in Detroit, and I've been very fortunate here, that I generated enough revenue so we can put quality food on the kids' uh, plates, and we can do some pretty exciting things in terms of healthy food, and we, we point at good food here. What what is the extent, um, I want to talk about the procurement process uh, first. So what is this actually, well, sorry, to go back, just to wrap up. So you oversee, you oversee a quite an extensive staff who does everything from menu setting to, you know, making sure that the nutritional requirements are met. 
60 people, 60 people in the central office. And then, you know, things like I had to, here uh, at HISD, I didn't have any Detroit, but because of diversity and because I have so many kids, I have a clinical dietitian right. on staff that oversees about a thousand kids that have anything from food allergy to inability to chew and just a lot of things wow. that yeah. we do. And this is like beyond the plate. Some of these things we don't have to do it because we make enough money and we can afford to do it. We extend this service to to our, our parents and to our, our, our kids. Um, okay, so what does the procurement process entail? Because that's obviously something you're, I imagine, very involved with. Can you just talk about how complex it is? Because <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realize. Well, here, here in, you know, in Detroit, it was kind of like straightforward because what I had was something called a broadline distributor. And I worked with, and that person did my milk, my bread, everything. It came off of one truck. So I didn't, you know, I did my bids annually. We had to go through the procurement officers, a bunch of USDA rules you have to, to obey. Uh, it has to be open. It has to be competitive. Uh, you have an evaluation skill. You have to be very careful because you just can't use price. You have to use best value because if you use price, you can get some real strange stuff on your trays. So you have to use you have to use best value. Sometimes the cheapest is not the best. Right. So you, you you do an RFP as opposed to an IFB. An RFB you ask for services. Okay. And I an IFB is just price. Okay. Just price. And so you can't you know you, food service directors spend a lot of time saying okay how, you know we got to evaluate the product. We got to make sure that we write the specifications in such a way that everybody can bid on it. We have to go through taste panels for our kids, so it takes it takes a year wow. or a year and a half almost to get the products to get new products on your menu, just because of the procurement process that we use here in here in HISD. You know, I had a food production facility here, with food production, a food manufacturing facility, which I closed. You did. And you, I closed it. The school had its own <laughs> manufacturing facility, or was it a yes. central kitchen, or or was it like a? It was a. It was a two hundred twenty-five thousand square foot manufacturing facility. Wow. That that was running counter to what the people in the community wanted. We were, you know, we were manufacturing food, and then we were sending that food out to the schools to be reheated or re-thermalized and fed to children. Well, this district did something. They started building brand new schools with kitchens. So it ran counter to what do we have? You know, our citizens invest all this money and to build these beautiful facilities. And I have some beautiful facilities here, and they're continuing to build them. Um, and we're we're trying to manufacture food and, and send it in. When I I got all the ovens and sinks and steamers and you name it. So that man said we did a cost benefit analysis and found out. That it was costing us more to manufacture food than it was for us to prepare food on site, and we and the quality was very questionable. I was, you know, that's one of the reasons that I was hired. Like, okay, not only did you, you know, you know how to run a district after management company, but you had to improve quality of food. Now, first thing I did is I went down there, I went downstairs, and I said, "This has got to go." <laughs> we got all these schools, two hundred eighty-four schools out here that are able, freestanding kitchens that can prepare their own food. Let's go Wait, back. How many, to sorry, sorry to interrupt you. How many schools did you say can prepare their own food? 284. All of them? All of them, yes. 
So all of your all of your schools have kitchens that are equipped to make food on site. Yes. Wow. Is that unique? Well, it is when you've got a 225,000 square foot food manufacturing facility, <laughs> but over the <laughs> That's just duplicative. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got to decide what are you doing here? Am I a food manufacturer or am I running on site uh, a limited service restaurant? Right. And okay. I, and I, you know, we made the calculus and we kid it and we, you know, we said, wait a minute, we're a limited service on site restaurant. Yeah. So we, this, this year is the first year that the food production facility has been, has ceased production and we're repurposing the building for other things. But now we're we're preparing food on site. We had started doing that. This is my third school year. We had started doing that my first year in because one of the things I, I don't like the menu. I don't like the colors. I don't like it. So we started putting salad bars. We have salad bars in all 157 elementary schools, and we have multi entrees in our junior high schools and high schools. So salad bar may not be there every day, but we have sandwich bars, panini machines. I mean, just a lot of stuff to try to meet the needs of our kids. Yeah. Oh. It's procurement as an issue. So what I do for procurement is that um, I buy from manufacturers direct because I have a warehouse. I had a warehouse. I went. I had a warehouse with 33 bays and 29 trucks and just a lot of stuff. And so we still have a warehouse. So we were buying manufacturer direct because I get, I get great pricing. Okay. Um, because I order straight from the manufacturers. But then the whole procurement process, it takes us a year. I mean, the, the funniest thing, it's not even funny, it just shows you how, how uh, tedious it is. It took me a uh, few months to get a biscuit and then a year to get the chicken patty that went inside the biscuit so that my kids could have a chicken biscuit that's equivalent to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Does it rival Chick-fil-A's chicken biscuit? Yes, it does. Really, <laughs> but with good. whole grain wheat, yeah, with yeah. whole grain flour, right? With the biscuit? Well, one of the things to hard, you know, jumping down a few questions, one of the hardest things to implement in Healthy and Hunger Free Act was the whole grain requirement. So we did get a waiver on our biscuit, and we got a waiver on a white tortilla shell. When you think about HSISD, it is a very diverse community. 65% Hispanic. 20% African-American, 8% uh, Caucasian or white. And then we have about 8 eight to 12% um, Middle Easterners or Indians or, you know, I guess it's Pacific Islanders. Mm-hmm. So it's a very diverse. So the only thing that they really have in common, all these populations, is rice. Okay. Um, so they culturally, love rice. So we kept, culturally. Yeah, yeah, we kept yeah. the brown. Yeah, culturally. We uh, we kept the brown rice. And they're Cajun. I'm yeah. in the South. I, I, they're Cajun. Yeah. And so we kept the rice. We kept the brown rice. We kept the, the noodles, the whole grain noodles. We kept the whole grain bread. We, you know, all we. the only thing we asked for a waiver for was the biscuit so that we could, could, you know, market the same as Chick-fil-A. And our kids are responding well to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have a, a chicken patty that has a whole grain breading on it. So, you know, we are, we, we are still, you know, trying to stay as true as we can, but the population, a whole grain biscuit just did not make it. And a whole yeah. grain tortilla could 
no, there's no way we could do it. So one of the questions I think people might be thinking is that there have been so many nutritional changes, like leaps and bounds nutritionally, school food, without a doubt, um, has improved since the implementation of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act in 2010. But I wonder if there are certain people listening who might think, well, a chicken biscuit doesn't sound very healthy. How would you respond to that? I would say that it, all food is not bad. We don't give a chicken biscuit every day, right? So we still keeping. We still have the whole grain. We were we're staying warm to whole grain, but we had to give our kids something they would eat. Right? They wouldn't eat a whole grain biscuit. It just it was brown. It was ugly. It was awful. And when we got the waiver for uh, a, a flour biscuit, and it it our participation went up. Kids started eating it. Kids enjoyed it. Same mm-hmm. thing with a tortilla. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to meet the needs of the kids, but we didn't change anything else. We, we you know, we, we're still, you know, obeying all the rules around the milk and the vegetables. And we won't. We're just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this was something that our population asked for. Right. And so I think it, you know, it speaks to, I think it's an important point you make in terms of, like, culturally, you you want to stay kind of true to the region and you also want to make sure that at the end of the day, kids this are is, eating. This is, this is biscuit and tortilla country. Right. I had to learn that coming. Yeah, from Detroit. Coming. Yeah. It's not, different. You know, not, not to now, not a whole lot of, well, Ann Arbor, not a whole lot of biscuits <laughs> and tortillas. <laughs> but they could eat a breakfast tacos and yes. things that these kids like. And they also, I, I don't feed garbage cans. I feed kids. I got a lot of needy kids here. Even before CEP, we were 87% free. Wow. That's so high, I had a right. lot yeah. of, yeah, I had a lot of hungry kids here. And so feeding garbage cans and having principals say, well, my children need to eat. Yeah. And they, they I, so, you know, we had to ask, you know, we thought long and hard and said, okay, we'll get a waiver on these two items, which are kids' favorites. What are they? And so we show you. Oh, sorry. So what what are the other so you you are allowed to and you're speaking about you're allowed to um, request permission from the USDA to Mm -hmm. um, have certain like requirements lifted in in certain uh, for certain products. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other and I you know, the the whole grain requirement increased greatly. Um, over the past, you know, 10 years, it's been uh, something that's mm-hmm. been phased in. And so that's what you're what you're referring to. But what are some of the other nutritional changes that you found particularly difficult to implement? I've heard from a lot of people that sodium, for instance, is something that a lot of school well, food service directors yeah. struggled with. Yes, sir. Sodium is is the key one now. Sodium is the key one. But we know that's, you know, like I said, I have some very talented dietitians that are able to formulate menus and stuff to meet the targets as they stand now. Uh, if they go, if they get even more severe, I don't know. How will I don't it know Because I think, I don't know, because I, I still contend that some of the, the sodium restriction of what they're targeting is for a 50 year old white male that had a double bypass. <laughs> you, see, you know, it, it, it's not for children. Right. It's not for children that are actively, are actively engaged. But the other things about the uh, Healthy and Hunger Free Act, they're fine. I mean, the milk's fine. I really love the fresh fruits and vegetables. I I think that's just great. You know, it it gave us a chance now to not, you know, not to serve all starchy foods. Right. So it's so interesting to hear. So you set your menu, and correct me if I'm, I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. You set your menu 
about a year, a year and a half in advance, which is also which you kind of also simultaneously do with the procurement process to make sure you can get the you know the the correct products in and products that are going to right be of and it makes quality. Yeah, and it, and it also makes it very difficult to do menu changes yeah. because the procurement process is so long. And so, like, you know, like if you see an item or the kids all of a sudden like an item, and we're constantly testing items with the kids, and the kids like the item and they liked it in, in 2018, they may not see it until 2020. Yeah. Wow. Because the procurement process is so long, and I do manifest, and then you've got to write specs, and you have to have bidding, and it, it just goes on and on and on. Now, those people who have broadline distributors, like I did in Detroit, I, I had more flexibility in Detroit because I had a broadline distributor who had my business. What does that mean? What is my, a, what's a broadline yeah, distributor? A broadline, that, I only have one distributor who, who served me, and they did my milk, my bread, okay. everything. Okay. And so if I needed a new item, I would tell them, you know, I just saw this item. Can you get some bits on it? And they would go out and get three bits on the item, mm-hmm. and they... They were responsible for making sure it met all the procurement standards, and I could get it on my trays in, in less than a month. Oh, and now and now that's but, you can't do that. No, it's not. No, because I do manufacture direct. Okay. And so we're trying to find out. Our biggest goal now is to how do we shorten that procurement process so that we can change. So if the you know kids are finicky, you know, like I was feeding millennials now. Millennials are the oldest millennial has a law degree now, and <laughs> yeah. so now I'm feeding alphas, right? And that and they're they're in the fifth grade. They're they're zero to to, to nine. That's a whole different. That's a whole different. Body. They're more savvy. They want different things. I mean, they like sushi. So we're dealing with now. How do how do we find a sushi? They like rice bowls. They love rice bowls. Oh, that's so uh, interesting. They, Oh, they love rice bowls. Oh, but so interesting. The, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. I love hearing this. What else? What else has changed in terms of preferences? They like they like salads. That's great. And 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 they and iceberg lettuce. They you, you give iceberg lettuce. They go, what's that? <laughs> They're used to romaine and mixed greens and baked spinach. Things that you know we didn't even think about. They whole grain breads they like, panini, you know, why they th- like that kind of stuff. Why do you think that is? I mean, because you come from a, a district that is, like you said, like very diverse, both um, like racially and also it sounds like economically. But you're seeing these mm-hmm, changes across the entire district. So why do you think, where do you think that comes from? Ex- exposure. Kids may be poor, but their parents, you know, their parents exposed to the thing. And I think it has something to do with advertising as well. You think it's moving in the right they direction? Should. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I mean, if more I kids are excited about eating, you know, they, if they don't want to eat iceberg lettuce versus right. like my you generation. Uh, you know, to, to use a, a, a company, Panero, they like smash ups. They like the smash up food. Yeah. So they, you know, where did they learn about ramen noodles from? It's from, from commercials. Where, you know, where um, Chick fil A. I had to really come with a product to, to compete with Chick-fil-A because there are limited service restaurants in, in all communities. There may not be any grocery stores, yeah. Yeah. they got fast food restaurants. I feel like Chick-fil-A so, isn't something in, is Chick-fil-A even in Michigan? I feel like it's not. I don't think so. Yeah, think so, so that must be. It's big down here, though. It's big down Yeah, here. no kidding. And that must have been changed. Not, and, and, 
you know, I'm not picking on it as the only one. There's just a whole bunch of, even, you know, like the chicken strips, you know. We um, uh, we use a lot of chicken strips. And so one of the things that I had to do is to make sure that I had a quality chicken strip. So all of my chicken strips and chicken patties are all white meat. They're not preformed. They're not minced. Yeah. I have white meats. White meat costs money. Yeah. <laughs> so... Do you have standards in terms of like um, like sourcing standards where the chicken comes from, how it was raised? Anything about kind of not 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 yet? That's well, coming. No, we really do. We want chicken that's that's uh, raised, given antibiotic for medical reasons only. I learned that from Kathy. Mm-hmm. Kathy worked long and hard on that. And, and that's so Kathy those, from, sorry, so I hope I don't keep on interrupting you. But okay, that's, Kathy Lawrence. Yes. Kathy Lawrence, I'm sorry. From School Kathy Food Lawrence Focus. School Food. Yeah, they did some good work on that. They yeah. did some good work. And, you know, uh, uh, so they gave us about, we have seven ingredients that we won't have. And I off the top of my head, I can't remember them. But, you know, dyes and certain things we, we, uh, we just can't don't. Pronounce. We don't, enter, yeah, mm-hmm. that we don't entertain in our food. Mm. So, and and my whole position has always been, you know, I, I beef fat brine was never one of my favorites, but you know we're going to give it to you raw, steamed, or baked, and that, and yeah. and and we don't want food that's been overly processed. So our luncheon meats and and stuff, we have some high standards for those. Um, what uh. What is the extent of the involvement of major food companies or big food in the implementation of the program in your district? Do they still have a big footprint or, you know, and, and how much of your work is kind of outsourced to them, if any? All right. Um, one of the things that we, we say big food, there are brand names that we do use and they are specifically associated with school nutrition. There are, you know, but their products are getting better. Um, I have to tell you, the Healthy and Hunger Free Act, if the manufacturers of food, and, and, and their brand names are big companies, but if the manufacturers that I use in terms of my chicken patty, they they know here are the standards, and, and they if they weren't formulating products that met the standards, I would be really in difficult, difficult situation. Mm-hmm. That's when people start talking about scratch cooking, I, I can't bring, I can't bring into a school. I do 200, 260,000 meals a day. Right. I'm not telling you, and I will tell no one, I'm not bringing raw chicken into my schools and trying to process a uh, thousand pieces of chicken to feed children. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling you that uh, we're making um, stuff from, from scratch. What we do is something called free speed scratch. I let the manufacturers bring the product up to a point where mm-hmm. I can handle it because of the labor costs. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I bless, bless the hearts of my colleagues that can stand and tell you straight face they're doing scratch cooking. Bless their hearts. I'm doing what's called speed scratch. I go to manufacturers. I say, I need this chicken patty and here's the formula. And, and they do, and they, and some of them may not be commercially known to guys, or they are commercially known, and uh, they have a school food line. Mm-hmm. So, so big food, you know. When you start talking about, there's some people who, yes, they're on my plate. There's other people that I don't want on my plate, but in, in response to it, they found a way to get on there, like snack foods. 
Mm -hmm. The the big food um, formulated a school product. If it meets the nutrition standard and your kids are standing there, you buy it. And I'm being honest with you. You know, like uh, one of them is my snack product. They have a commercial product that's two ounces, but they have a school product that's one ounce and more in sodium. And the kids buy the product not necessarily because of what's in the bag, but whose name is on the bag. Interesting. So it's hard, hard that's, to compete you know, with. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I can't. Uh, I, an example, I'm not going to name the company, but an example is there's a fast food company that sells a spicy chicken patty for a dollar. It's .75 ounces, not even an ounce. But I have a spicy chicken patty on my menu that meets the standards, served on a whole grain bun, and I can't give it to them. They'd rather go buy the one that has the brand name on it. Right, right. Um, so so that, that's, that's an ongoing challenge, it sounds like. Yes, it is. Um, okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, um, but stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Betty Wiggins, School Food Service Director at Houston Independent School District. Um, okay, uh, Betty, so I want to talk a little bit about something you said earlier, which was you feed children, not garbage cans. Since you've implemented, which is good, <laughs> I think that's a good thing to hear. Um, since you've interviewed or since you've implemented the standards, have you seen food waste go up? Because I think a lot of uh, opponents of the program and of you know these kind of stricter nutritional standards w will say that it just simply the food just goes into the trash. You know, there's there's lots of uh, reasons why the food goes into trash. It's not necessarily what's on the plate. Consumptions of fresh fruit and vegetables have gone up because that's a requirement now. But you know, think you know, and I'm, I'm I have to be very gingerly um, to approach this in a very Mm. Milk. Oh, yeah, when I, I have a question Detroit, about milk. Yeah. Sorry, go on. When I was in Detroit, I did not serve chocolate milk. And one of the reasons I did not serve chocolate milk, not because I thought it was a bad product, that when my children sat down and they only had 20 minutes to eat, the first thing they did was grab the chocolate milk, fill it, 
sweet. Mm-hmm. Sweet. It's a, and they would uh, drink chocolate milk. And then it's time for them to go, and nothing else is eaten on the tray. So one of the things that I do is I didn't offer chocolate milk. Well, it the other milk, 1%, was not attractive. So I could get them to eat more food and eat more vegetables and drink the milk last. Mm-hmm. So here in, here in the state of Texas, they don't let you offer chocolate milk on the pre-K menu. And, you know, I just accepted that as they, well, they didn't, you know, we want kids to eat more food. So, so chocolate milk, not to demonize chocolate milk, but in Detroit for five years, I didn't serve chocolate milk. And it didn't affect my participation. It did not affect my participation. So if a kid started out with me in kindergarten, not having chocolate milk on the tray by the time he got to the fifth grade, it, it was an expectation. Right. Because I, I even even looked at parents. When parents in the grocery store, they don't, you know, go into the grocery store and the first thing they tell a kid, well, run over there and get two gallons of chocolate milk. No. <laughs> chocolate, milk is, chocolate milk is a phenomena to the child nutrition program. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't even, it's very difficult to even find a gallon of chocolate milk in a store. You can <laughs> so find a half really gallon. Point. You can find a quart. But you can't, you can't find a gallon because parents don't value chocolate milk. They're buying 2% or they're buying 1%, and even some parents are going back now and buying whole. But very few, I don't care what the economic group, are you going to find chocolate milk as one of the priorities? I view chocolate milk as a, uh, a beverage. It's a treat. and Or it should be a yeah, treat. Yeah. It should be a treat. But it's, it's, it's front and center on the child nutrition program. So I'm, you know, I'm not trying to get myself in trouble with the dairy council, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a problem powerful. with, yeah. But I, but you talk about big food, so you talk about the associations, you know, the the beef the beef association, the chicken, the chicken manufacturers, all these producers. I I was so glad when the Healthy and Hunger Free Act came along because finally at last, fresh fruits and vegetables had a had a place at the table. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, before that, you know, we were doing iceberg lettuce, diced tomatoes, and, and that was salad. Now all sorts of vegetables are being put on our kids' trays. Do you think that, that is... That they never would have... That they wouldn't I have... I think that's a... Try, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Do you think that that has increased food waste, though? Not, not really. It depends on how you serve it to the kids. Like I'm, I'm not like I don't I don't use uh, fresh pears because it's like doing dental work on six year olds because they're hard <laughs> yeah. and it's it's very difficult for them. So, but we do sliced. We slice them. We put them in wedges. We dice it up. If we do pineapple, we make it so that we dice it so they can eat it with their fingers. Yeah, uh, they love apple slices. They just you know bananas are are, are good. Grapes, you, you pull them off the stem and you put eighteen in a cup. That's dietary equivalent and and so there's things that you have to do that that put more fresh fruits and vegetables on the tray kids are eating baby spinach and salads yeah come on my kids eat jicama down here like it's no tomorrow yeah but you know even sweet potato sticks and things like the fresh fruit and vegetable program has also been a good investment where we get to introduce to kids, particularly, and, and, and unfortunately, it is kids of high poverty schools. We, we they they get a sampling of a different kind of vegetable. Mm-hmm. That's the reason I think that farm to school is so important, because we start educating kids 
about fresh fruits and vegetables. They got them on the, they got, they advertisers got them already on snacks and, and, and beverages and, and your favorite uh, limited service restaurant product. But actually getting them engaged in fresh fruits and vegetables and ask, asking them to think critically about their food choices. That's one of the reasons in Detroit I did the large farm to school pro- uh, program, and it probably was in response to I just couldn't stand to see all that vacant land around us. And so I had did, you know, I had 82 schools for school gardens, and we had food deserts, and, you know, we had to teach kids about vegetables. Here in Houston, we're doing something now called food literacy. It's it's uh, and food inclusion, and the reason I call it inclusion is because of diversity of the people whom I serve. Mm-hmm. You can take a bean, you can take a pinto bean here in Houston, and you can serve as a charro bean, pinto bean. You can do peas and rice. You can be. I have Caribbean, so you you do peas and rice. It's just things, and so we're trying to introduce it across the board to kids. Go, what's that? And the, and the kids, the little Caribbean kids, say, well, I eat. Charo, you got to try this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that that's the whole thing that I believe the socialization and having kids understand that what you see at your home is not necessarily everything that the, the whole whole spectrum of food that's available to you. Uh, uh, down here, I've had to get used to the fact that um, things like jicama and some and you know where I, I, I in Michigan we used to have um, a mix with butternut squash and turnips and, and carrots. Well, they don't raise that cow here. <laughs> and, and so I had to get accustomed to seeing, okay, what is the indigenous food? And it's okra. They do okra. Yeah. So kids eat roasted okra. Where in Detroit, if I gave a kid a piece of okra, mm-hmm. yeah. like, I'm, what is this? Yeah, I'm from Michigan also, as you know, and I'm like, ugh, don't <laughs> give me okra. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, but hon, if you roast it with a little lime juice on it, it's really good. Maybe if you made me okra, I would I would like it. But ever uh, wow, oh. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay. So it sounds well, like so it sounds like you these programs like the um, fresh fruit and vegetable program and kind of farm to school programs have really helped increase uh, like awareness and getting kids to try new vegetables. Um, and then it also sounds like you said kind of the food waste issue because there have been studies that have shown that it hasn't increased food waste even though a lot of people who I don't I don't well, I don't know why people on would the, want to on, say. The, on the back side of that is kids don't have enough time to eat particularly at the elementary level yeah so there are other factors and, so and, how, how much time do they yes. typically have well in my district I think I have half an hour lunch or something I have 25 minutes but when you got to start feeding kids at 10 o'clock in the morning yes. and you don't stop feeding them to 1 and it's just one big continuous line. See, one of the investments we didn't make, we just didn't make it, you know, we in schools. It used to be your little school cafeteria was at, the, your school was at the end of the cul-de-sac, and you might have went home. Or if kids came like in Ann Arbor, one of the biggest problems we had was that all the schools were built so the kids were either going home, walking home, mm-hmm. or their parents gave them brown bags. Well, when Mama went out to work, we had to start doing uh, food. So you see around 76, you've seen all these big kitchens being created and transporting food and everything. But it wasn't the best, but it, it was school lunch. So now here's the problem. The cafeterias in elementary schools aren't big enough. They have not expanded with the time because now 
you got that same size cafeteria. Now you're putting pre-K, four, kindergartners all day long. You should didn't have the kindergartners in the, in the cafeteria. Now you're putting the kindergartners in the cafeteria that was only spent for one to five. Mm-hmm. You're putting the kindergartners in. Now, oh, by the way, we decided kids need to be educated sooner. So we started pre-K four. Oh, no, they really need to be educated. So now we have pre-K three, three-year-olds oh, wow. in that same spot. But no one talked about that physical space. And then you look at the poor principal and I'm not, okay, you got 54 minutes active, but you got to feed all these kids. Because yeah. feeding is an expectation. It is an expectation. Yeah. So when, so when you look, and I look at my breakfast numbers, and I look at my cafeteria numbers, and they're all, my bunch numbers, I mean, and they're really close. Because I'm feeding the kids breakfast in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the cafeteria, we, we're pushing kids 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock. or That's 10 so early. Start some lunches. Yeah. Well, yeah, then when the kid, when the parent picks the kid up, the kid, first thing he's like, what's wrong? I'm hungry. You didn't eat while well, he ate at 10.15 or he ate at 10.30. And so now parents are be kind of beginning to make that the issue. I think that's the new issue. I think the amount of time the kids have to eat and lunch shaming is, are going to be the two major issues. And they're being driven by parents. How's they're not being driven by us. Well, can we, I want to, I want to um, ask you, I want to lo- hear about why, why you think that is. But first I want to talk a little bit about lunch shaming. Can you just um, tell us what this is and if you've experienced this um, in the past in your schools? Never in any school that I worked in, Ann Arbor, never. Because we either the district took the responsibility or uh, we had CEP. CEP is the white lunch shaming right off the face of the map. When I got here at Houston in 2017, because there was no lunch shaming, Houston never lunch shamed kids. We had a $208,000 debt that the district did assume. The district did pay off. Mm-hmm. When we got CEP, lunch shaming went away. Lunch shaming is when a kid gets into the line and he finds out there's no money on his account. Well, when there's no money on his account, he's given an alternate meal. Sometimes it's a cheese sandwich and it sounds like prison, doesn't it? I, I, I don't mm-hmm. I need to describe it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I, I just don't know. A cheese sandwich and, and a and a and a card of milk, or it's a peanut a P and J and a card of milk. Now, that's ration. Yeah, yeah, it's really awful. It is, and then you got and then it's it, to me it's institutional bullying. Mm-hmm. You're making, you're getting a, you're getting a five year who had no responsibility for putting money on his account. And here's a real deal that I tell people all the time. It's not the poor kids I worry about. It's the kids I say that live at the end of the cul-de-sac where their parents have competing economic issues going on in that household that they may have forgotten or they may not have the money. And they're hoping to God that when they get to school, they'll feed you. There, there are people, middle-income people, who who run out of food, who go to food pantries Thursday and Friday because they ran out of food by Wednesday. And yet so they're I expected mean, to pay because they don't qualify expected, for free. Yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. And so I, you know, I always, I had this, I had this favorite thing, and I'm always advocating for hunger at the end of the cul-de-sac. I advocate for it because I've seen the kids. I've seen them in lines, and I've seen the kids. 
I, you know, I see them sneaking the lines or I see them, you know, with universal breakfast now. If we can feed kids universal breakfast, why are we feeding kids universal lunch? I, it just it just behooves me. How Exactly how much would it cost? Can we get a parents a tax break? I can't we sit down, politicians, lawmakers, find a way how we can feed our children. Right. I mean, the Secretary of the Army said, you know, we're not, we're not, um, we're not raising, we're not nurturing a nourishing a very healthy army because twenty five percent of them uh, aren't eligible as recruits because of, of diseases that are mitigated by diet. Mm-hmm. This is a national defense issue, right? Which is it's ironic. A I mean, proposition. it's it's amazing because part of the reason the program was started in the first place was to. Uh, fight against they malnutrition. Under-nourished. Yeah, they're under undernourished, and then they were not eligible to be able to serve in the army. So it was also a national security issue. So it's it's um, comes full circle. And obesity but. and diabetes have the same ramifications as very very and quashicor. Yeah, they're not fit. They're not healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you yeah. said that that lunch shaming and um, was it food waste is. No, no, sorry. Lunch shaming and the amount of time that kids have to eat are yes. issues that are being yes. driven by the parents. Um, can you tell us yes. why why that is? Well, I, you know, I've been looking at blogs. There's two women. I, I don't remember their names, but they have a blog about how kids don't have enough time. Uh, Parent Magazine in 2018 had a big article about kids not having enough time. I talked to some of my professional colleagues that have small children, and they're going, like, gosh, darn it, you know, my kid comes home, and he's, and I pick him up from school, and he's hungry. He runs in the house, and what time does he eat? And I tell him, he says, what? They have to eat at that? I said, look, you know, we, we have to, whatever lunchtime we're given, that's what we have to feed kids in. And so they don't have it. So they may have a 20, 25-minute lunch time period. But if you're that last kid in line with 30 kids in the classroom, that ladies can only, that ladies and gentlemen can only serve so fast. Yeah. You know, you, you know. I, it reminds me sometimes when I go in elementary schools and I see, I was like, oh, you know, I wouldn't have to remember Rawhide. And the theme song was, add them up, move them out. We just <laughs> shoving them through lines. And then, you know, what about choice? It's just like, here, give them a plate of food. Here, give them a plate of food. So we have offer versus serve. If you have, if you really exercise off versus serve, and the kid can say, you know, I want this, I don't want that, and just give them a plate of food or some things they don't want. Off versus serve allow them to make choices, and if we educate them about choices, that's the reason that my salad bars are inside the service line and not away from the service line. Because I treat it like an entree, and that kid gets to go through the line and say, I want this, I want that, I want this. And it, it's not as hard as people think it is, and it moves quite fast, and he'll eat it. Yeah. As opposed to just putting food on a tray. And so I have salad bar, I have a salad bar entree in my elementary school, and then I have something, a daily entree, maybe tamales or enchiladas or something like that. But it, it works out really well. And but that takes time. Ways. It takes time to make choices. Like you want to give kids a yeah. time to make choice, yeah. but if they're like the last person but, in line or you're trying to move the line. But if, but if you're 800 kids, 800 kids in the elementary school or 600 kids in the elementary school, and oh, by the way, we just added pre-K 4 and pre-K 3. I had a school where I went in, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to work on now is that I'm trying to feed those 
impede those young or grades in place in their classrooms so that they can have some time to eat. Even lunch. And not... That yes, lunch? Yeah, absolutely. Lunch. Wow, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I have one pilot going on at uh, one of our schools where there was 250 children. We left them. I said, look, I'm not marching these little fellas. <laughs> like, it's like a perp walk. I'm not marching them to the cafeteria. <laughs> and you, then you get them into the cafeteria because they're little folks. You got to pick them up and shove them in. And then they got to go through the line and the tray is heavy. Oh, it's just so many things that we need to talk about that mitigates plate waste. So, you know, so we were trying, we had a program where we're trying to serve uh, kids in their in their classrooms but that costs money because the teachers have got to have their lunch mm-hmm. teachers do have to have their lunch and so that means that if i want to do that i have to find a way to provide some chaperoning some services to the to the kids while they're eating lunch so um it's been quite difficult because it adds to the expense but guess what those babies get to eat at a quarter to twelve yeah, at instead the right of time, reading yeah. that tent. Yeah. So you know, what what do we value in this country? You know, what what do what do we value in this country? If you know, where you have to have fifty four minutes of academic time, so why can't we have fifty four minute lunch periods for little fellas? It might be too much a half an hour. Oh, that's too much time. They'll get. But then split it up between outside and inside. Give them some recess. You know, for fifteen minutes. But give them a time to eat. Everybody should have at least 10 minutes. Of, and they're little kids. And so that's the other thing I was telling my people, like, okay, let's not give them food that they're going to have to manipulate. Nothing they're going to have to cut. Nothing, you know. Let's give them something they can pick up and eat. A burger, a chicken nugget, uh, a jicama. But when we give them a salad, we, you know, we took away, um, they used to serve a sport. Now we yeah. use forks. Good, yeah. We don't use forks anymore. I, I said, now how somebody's supposed to eat a spaghetti and meatball? <laughs> so well, that just makes sense, use, but it's, oh, that is like I said, the most offensive tool to me. I just, or the, the uh, thought well, that we kids stop. can. Well, yeah. they're not in HISD anymore. Yeah. Wow. So, um, that's, that is, that is fantastic. We, um, we, we. I could keep talking to you forever, and um, I want to make sure that we get in a, just a couple more questions um, sure. before I we have to jump. But if you know, there are still a lot of misperceptions about school lunch, and I do think that you know the the front the people on the front lines, the school food um, workers, kind of get a lot of blame for the perceived um, lack of quality of of school meals. Is this something that you've dealt with and that you've experienced in the past and how have you kind of managed every day every day we deal with that issue uh one of the reasons that um we had to ask for the waiver on the biscuit is that it they were going to be in the ball it's you know i told people uh when you talk to kids about school food um and even some of the adults they say it's nasty i said let me tell you guys something nasty is the new n-word please don't say that to me anymore. It's hurtful. Mm-hmm. It's hurtful to my staff. We've been trying our, our darndest to make sure that we have quality food for kids. But no, I can't put all these salty hot sauces and I can't put 
all the salt and butter and oozing that you get out in other limited service restaurants. They have no regulations. We have regulations. So we're constantly looking for products. We're constantly looking for, and, and with manufacturers help now, I, I, I'll have to be honest with that, of trying to make it more tasty. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with the sugar acuity being what it hit, <laughs> yeah. you know, first thing they go for is sweet. And so we're, we're constantly trying, and yeah, you know, and then there's the issue of training staff. Mm-hmm. There is an issue with training staff that can handle these new menus that we're, that we're working on. Uh, presentation, merchandising. Because when you get in a high school, you know, I have a food court. I literally have a food court. Wow. So that, that you just can't, you can't just put the food down. You know, we're wrapping the sandwiches in checkered paper now. We've had, because we serve good food, we have a good food label. We're doing promos. What is, we a, do what is a good food party. label? What is the, what is a good food label? Well, we decided that what we do is serve good food. That's our mission, serve good food. So we came up with all of our shirts now. Don't say they don't say Office of School Nutrition. They say good food. <laughs> that, that's our logo. And so when we have to put labels on our product, it's good food. We label our product as good food. That's awesome. Our so you're branding. Yes. Yeah. I have to, you know, I'm a limited service when I woke up one day and I realized, oh, my God, I'm a limited service restaurant. Open five days a week, serve breakfast and lunch, sometimes supper, yeah. 180 days a year. Oh, by the way, I have an additional 100. I mean, I started, wait a minute. I, I'm a limited service restaurant. For 200 I mean, and some know, thousand meals a day. Kids. Yeah. Kids a day. Mm-hmm. Like that's... I'm, the biggest, I'm the biggest franchise in the city of Houston. It's yes. no, you put them all in. I'm still the biggest, and and I and oh, oh by the way I sell at a less and less than competitive price. Right. Well, no you, one, none of my kids walk up and say, "Here's the eight dollars." No, sweetie, it, it's it's free. It's for free. It's amazing. It is yeah, just it's for free. Sorry, and I totally cut you off. You were you were kind of listing off some of the really fun things that you do um, in your high school. So you make it seem like a food court. You have branding, and you know kind of the packaging on the food is important yes. and did yes. you say something about did you say tailgating did i hear that? we have tailgate parties what is yeah that? what we do is we because i couldn't i mean it's we take advantage of the weather here at houston and we have some beautiful schools absolutely gorgeous schools with lovely campuses and stuff the investment the citizens made here is just astounding i have never seen schools prettiest ones i've never had that. i mean because maybe because i work in the cold northeast or maybe it's, mm. it's, you know whatever yeah but we can we take a barbecue grill out we uh get the local radio station to come out really trying to get the participation of and keep our, our our high school kids interested because the biggest issue for us is competitive foods because all around us is uh, all the limited service restaurants you can name them and those kids because they've been allowed, that's what they've grown up with, that's what they want. But my whole belief is the same thing that, you know, like I said, in Detroit, when we didn't have chocolate milk on the tray, the kids didn't have any expectation. The high school kids got over it. Right. I mean, yeah. So, but, you know, so you have to train the kids, and, 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 and there has to be a sacred space for school food. And not not people competing with it, not with the candy bars and at this club and at that club and the PTO and and all the different things that distract away from what we serve and 
if you, you know, like I said, with this chicken patty, of course my chicken patty is nasty as opposed to because uh, uh, a limited or a brand name, he doesn't have to do that. He has no standards. Right. He, you know, he doesn't. And But I have all these standards to deal with. So, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing battle. So what we do is survey and we get up every day and, you know, go out there and, and try to serve kids good food. Salad bars have been successful. Um, I'm, you know, I wasn't particularly fond of hot dogs simply because I came from a high poverty district. So now I have to have hot dog there, take me out to the baseball game. So the kids, so we get my hot dog with, with coleslaw, you know, yeah. uh, uh, fish. I mean, and, and the food allergies are killing us. Right, yeah. And I think that's, that's all environmental. I think it really is. The number of food, you know, we don't serve peanut butter anymore. We yeah. are a nut-free district because of the number of food allergies. And uh, the number of EpiPens. I mean, in Detroit, I had an EpiPen in every school because of the food allergies. So, you you know, you have stuff like fish that you couldn't serve. Or if you served it, you know, I finally got pork put back on the menu. You, you can't serve fish? You can't serve fish? No. I serve it, but I got schools where kids have allergies. So if one kid has an allergy and the kid sees the fish, and he picks it up and he eats it because he thinks that it's chicken. Yeah. And next thing you know, we're calling, you know, we're, we're, we know got an emergency issue here. Oh, my gosh. But, you know, like, but they love fish. I'm in the golf. They love fish. So we, you know, we've done things and put signs out and stuff. So we haven't, we're serving catfish. So we make something called a catfish pokeway, which is a local favorite. Yeah. And it tastes just like the ones they get in the street. We uh, have street tacos. We have uh, cream corn. Um, what do they call it? Oh, I got it. I got the name wrong. Well, it's, I mean, it all sounds corn. delicious. But well, yeah, but you know, we have to compete with what the kids see in the streets, and they're and they're, and and you know, getting parents. You know, the other one. Oh God, I hadn't thought about that. I'm telling you, the other one is food delivery, Grubhub, uh, uh, Dash. DoorDash. DoorDash, yeah, for the for the kids. high school kids, that is, a, I yeah. imagine, yeah. Mhm, mhm. And so now we had to say, okay, you can't come up on our campuses because kids got cell phones. And they said, oh, let's, let's call Grubhub and have them bring us food. So and so and then they, you know, so there's so many competing things out there that you can't regulate commerce. I can't regulate commerce beyond the schoolyard. I can't right. do that. But you're in the business of feeding kids good, nutritious food, and it's really hard when they mm-hmm. when you have these kind of competing, these very oh. for-profit companies mm-hmm. trying to market. Mm-hmm. They're not and, nutritious. And, you know, and, 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 and uh, the other one is, is a competition internal to the schools, clubs. And, and, you know, they say, well, you know, I have a, you know, I got a problem here in Houston with that. But they say, well, you know, there's not enough dollars to support extracurricular activities because, yeah, we got to focus on education. So they get a contract and they say, and while I might, I might use a brand name pizza to draw kids in, it's not formulated the same way as the one that the coach gets. So I, I walked in one of my schools one day and the, and the pizza man was coming in because we had to have this commercial pizza because kids eat with their eyes sometimes. They, oh, this is this is good pizza. Your pizza is awful. <laughs> Although it's, it's formulated and it's just as good. 
And I'm like, what are you doing? He says, well, I got to take these hundred down to the coach, and then I'll bring yours in. The coach was <laughs> hundred pieces of pizza. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god. So, or you go into a school and it looks like an airport mezzanine food court mm-hmm. because of all all the competitive foods are being sold, and you know, and and um, it 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 gets disheartening. It, it really competitive foods gets disheartening. We got all these rules and everything. I was telling someone one day. I said, you know what? I'm the food police. I got a hat. I got a badge. I got a gun. No bullets and no arresting powers. I, and I and I just walked through and you know asked, please don't do this. You know you're violating rules. Yada yada yada. Yeah, but the such and such a team needs a field trip bus. Are you going to deny the kids a chance of having a debate club? Huh? It's not. It's not a fair. It's not a fair position to put. No, it's not. It's not leveling ground. It's not leveling. But if we weren't a not-for-profit business, so many of my colleagues and even myself have it held over your head that if you, you know, if you don't break even, if you run a deficit, we're going to outsource you. That that's how a lot of people got outsourced, and even some some people who have. Uh, fund balance. Some of the reasons they get outsourced is because of procurement. We can't move as fast as the management companies can. We can't change menus. We can't meet the needs of our customers as fast as management companies can. We don't have multi-million dollar staffs for marketing as management companies have. So we can't compete with a management company. So what do you think? And, so and, so we have to wrap, we have to unfortunately wrap up here. But what do you think? Um, what can like listeners and parents do about that? Because I think it's pretty clear that what's most important is to keep people like you in place running programs that you are running and, you know, with and to be able to do that and kind of control your environment without the threat of the program being outsourced, which we've seen time and time again. So what can people listen to? Time and time again. Yeah. So well, what can people do? Well, one of the things I think we need, I think we need a national feeding program. I just really think that we need to take the register out of the cafeteria. Take the register out I spend millions and millions of dollars on a POS system. I got, I have, I have better analytics than than probably Kmart's because of what we have with our our point of sale. Take the cash register, take the whole thing out. I mean, a bus ride has value, but you don't ask a parent to put money on his account to get a ride to school. So I, I think we right. need to say, what is the role? Huh? I said you are right. You are correct. <laughs> So one of the roles is that we, we as a we as a country, we as people, either locally or statewide, uh, have to say, you know, feeding our kids is important regardless of their income. The whole thing with, with competitive sales, you know, that they need to properly fund extracurricular activities so that PTO parent or that teacher or that principal don't have to come out and be, you know, be renegade entrepreneurs to get money to keep programs and services that enhance education in their schools going. So, you know, are we properly funding education? So it all starts on the back end. You know, I have, I'm lucky here. I got leadership in Houston that believes in feeding children. It absolutely bottom line. My boss, he goes just absolutely crazy 
if we're not feeding kids and not, not feeding them high quality. And I was saying, way with my boss in Detroit. But I look at him and I say, well, here's your numbers. You know, if I do this, then we're, you know, we're not going to make enough money to uh, break even. And so you have to decide whether food, feeding children adequately, feeding children appropriately. And is this a wraparound service that we should be providing to parents? People are spending all kind of money for wraparound services, you know, enhanced uh, community and schools and all sorts of stuff. They give them, you know, a to a free test and Title One money and yada yada. Why isn't food considered a, a civil right and not a privilege? Because that little girl that gets lunch shame, she's being lunch shame because they're treating her food like a privilege that she has to pay for. So that, that's that's my that's my belief. I, I just really think we need to talk about on the policy end. Yeah, what is it? It's been around too long. You know what? School lunch has almost been around as long as Social Security. It's working out okay. Yes. Well, we might not have that for very much longer. So, <laughs> well, well, there's gonna be a lot of people kicking and screaming. They will be in the street, but it's been around a long time. You think yeah. about the programs that's been around a long time. Yeah, and yeah. we tweaked them and we worked on them, and they're still available. Uh, it's getting scary about these food stamp cutbacks. Uh, you know, I don't know what the ramifications going to be in my district yet because I have yeah. CEP. There's, I mean, it's. It is a very politically challenging time. That is. Why are we, so we, we politicize a hamburger. <laughs> I mean, to be the job. Power that is, yes, that is, that is true. And an amazing quote. Um, all right, mm-hmm. Betty, I have to leave it there, but I want to thank you okay. so much um, for coming on sure. and, and talking about all of these issues. You are a school food warrior and your work <laughs> is you. just beyond impressive. So thank you so, so much. Eating Matters is produced with help from Julia Devon and Jessica Duncan. Our show engineer is Jeet Paul and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liu and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>